Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, welcome back. Dr. Hondorp here, and I know that I say I'm excited about every episode because I truly am. I bring guests on who are I am really, really excited to talk to, and I, I believe all of them have something special to share with you. However, this interview is my favorite interview that I've done, and I don't say that lightly because I've done a lot lately that I've been really, really excited about. So if you're listening in your prior guest, please do not feel bad. I'm really excited about this one because I think Dr. Yami has a unique gift of how she is able to kind of approach and talk about really important topics and I titled this episode, as you have seen, How to Do Plant-Based Eating 100% Shame-Free. But when I say that, it's it really is how to be empowered with the evidence and the research about our eating patterns and disease risk in a non-diet way. And to not feel bad about anything that you're doing because most of us grew up in diet culture, but we also grew up eating the standard American diet. And I don't want anyone to feel bad about that. And I don't want anyone to feel stressed about that. But what Dr. Yami does so well is really merges the worlds of intuitive eating and really food freedom with this empowered approach to disease risk. So Dr. Yami is a pediatrician. She has a She's a physician. She has her master's in public health. She's got another master's. She has about 400 letters across after her name. But really, this this interview uh, kind of blew me away, and it, I laughed because I I listened to her podcast often before I invited her on, and she had done an interview about food addiction, and we actually talk a little bit about food addiction in today's episode. But we had done this interview about food addiction, and she had talked about how she left the interview and was like really excited and was like jumping around and just uh, really excited about the interview and the process. And I laughed because that's 100% how I felt after my interview with her. I I just feel like she's doing amazing work in the world, and I feel so grateful for her to come on and talk to you today. 
So I, I really do believe that, you know, our mission here is to get as many women, especially out of the ineffective diet cycle and, and building lives where they have more courage and connection and, and really are able to contribute your unique gifts to the world. And I believe Dr. Yami is an excellent example of that. And I'm so excited to dive in. So what to expect for this interview? And besides just a lot of amazingness, right? We answer the question that I've been asking myself kind of on and off for the past year. Can an intuitive eating type approach truly jive with a vegan or plant-based lifestyle? How do you know if it's restrictive? And I've, you know, my gut has said, yes, the two can go together because the two go together in my life, even though, as I've shared before, I do not have any foods that are off limits, but that's kind of the key, right? I, I don't eat fully vegan is what I'm saying, but the key is this unconditional permission to eat and you free up choice. You're not doing it to try to shrink your body and then you have true freedom and choice and then you can figure out what works for you. So we talk about that. We talk about how to know if it's restrictive for you and really being honest with yourself about that is key and we talk about some ways to do that. We also talk about Dr. Yami's take on food addiction. I think you're going to be really surprised and impressed with her answer. I can't wait for you to hear it. We also dive into a little bit of the sobering facts about the standard American diet how you can use this information in an empowered and positive way. We talk about crucial common myths that you must understand about dairy and animal protein. And again, this is from a pediatrician with decades of experience. She also is Panamanian and grew up with a family that was dairy farmers. So she, she really just has a unique perspective here. And then we're also going to talk about what to make of information that we might find online, like something someone had shared with me recently that I asked her about is the plant paradox uh, that you will find online and her thoughts about it. She's read the book. She had some really great takes on it and really just this question of how to know who to trust. And her answer here was so good. So make sure you stay tuned for that. We also talk about some tips to move towards adding in more whole plant foods and reducing ultra processed foods in your uh, diet or in your eating style today without being restrictive or feeling like a diet. So clearly there's a bunch of good here. Without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Yami. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote unquote be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought they will notice I've gained weight or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you, I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide, which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, 
and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone, is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. All right, so welcome, welcome. I'm so excited about my conversation today. We have Dr. Yami and we have a lot to cover today. So we're just going to jump right in if that's good with you, Dr. Yami. Thank you so much for being here on the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. Let's do this. All right. So like I said, we got a lot to cover, but first, can you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey and how you came to doing the work that you do? Yes. Well, I'm a, first and foremost, I'm a primary care pediatrician and I've wanted to be a physician since I was four years old. So that was my mission in life and my main goal for a long time. However, ever since I was little, I was a chubby child and around the age of nine, I started on my first diet and it was mainly because my family was concerned about my body size and my doctor was concerned. And so I was put on a calorie restricted diet and that was the first of many diets over many decades to come. So I became a yo-yo dieter. And because of that journey, I also became interested in health. Of course, at that point, when I was younger, health was how do you eat less calories, learning about calorie counting, dieting, those kinds of things. And as I got older, it evolved not just for me, but for my patients, because I was interested in keeping my patients healthy but I was still kind of practicing along the same understanding and the same biases as far as weight and restriction, decreasing portions, decreasing calories, that kind of thing. It wasn't until I started my first job. So I went to medical school and I went to residency to become a pediatrician. And then I started my first job here in central Washington that things really just kind of broke down. I had brought my second child home because of all of my history of dieting and restriction, I was in my binging phase, you know, it's like restriction and binging. And I had become the binging had gotten worse and worse, the more dieting I had done. And I just hit my rock bottom. I remember just being so frustrated and feeling like I couldn't concentrate on anything. I couldn't enjoy my son that we had just brought home. I couldn't enjoy being a mother. I couldn't enjoy working because I was constantly thinking about food, either how not to eat it, or if I was planning a binge, what I wanted to eat. And it got to the point where 
I felt like maybe I wasn't a good enough mother and maybe my children would be better off without me. So it got that low and it was scary because I knew that it was a slippery slope. Once you get really depressed, you can start believing things that aren't true very easily. And I felt like I was, I had just stepped my toe into believing things that could lead me down a path that wasn't going to be the best choice for me in my life. And so I sought help at that point. I started seeing a therapist. I saw my physician, but I also found a coach and this was a non-diet coach that worked with women who were overeaters and binge eaters. And that was my first introduction into a non-diet approach to wellness and well-being. And that was the first time in my life where somebody asked me what I really wanted, like, what is it that you want to feel? And why do you think being a certain size is going to help you feel that? And understanding how weighing myself several times a day wasn't probably beneficial to me, but always leaving it up to me. It wasn't, she wasn't like, you shouldn't weigh yourself and you should never diet. It was more like, let's think about these things. And this, is this what you really want to do? And that was my introduction into intuitive eating. And it was very soon after that, that I serendipitously learned. And it was kind of all happened at the same time about plant-based nutrition, because I was long distance running and had some issues with plantar fasciitis. So I started trying barefoot running and learning more about it. So I read a book called born to run, which in the book, they talk about a native Mexican tribe called the Tara Umara, where they mostly subsist on plant-based foods just because they live in the middle of the desert and that's what they have access to. And Scott Jurek, who is a famous ultra marathoner who is vegan. And I had never really thought about these things or heard about these things, except for the fact that in medical school and training, you get taught that it's bad for you and you're going to get a nutrient deficiency and die. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was, it was put in a way that I was like, wait a second. I thought that not only was it not healthy to eat this way, but how could you be an ultra athlete? I mean, that like blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had this thought of like, I just want to try it and see what happens. I wasn't even thinking about health. I was actually probably more thinking about my running to see if it would help me with my running and if it would make a difference in that. And so that's when I started my 30 day experiment in plant-based eating. And of course, during that month, I started learning as much as I could watching all the documentaries, including all of the advocacy and ethical vegan documentaries. And by the end of the 30 days, there was no going back. And so now I had this experience with plant-based nutrition, learning about that, but also with a non-diet approach and intuitive eating. And that was the beginning of the journey and trying to meld those two together in a way that worked for me and my family. And eventually I could apply it to my patients. Yeah. I love everything about what you shared because I can relate to so much of it. I also, uh, read born to run, but I actually didn't find plant-based eating until later on. Um, but I read it more so just cause I found it interesting and I had friends trying the barefoot running. I did not try that. It did not work <laughs> for my feet at all, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's so, and I'm curious the kind of intuitive eating non-diet approach and the plant-based approach. It sounds like they came into your world pretty a similar timeline. Yes. So I think Around that's the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of fascinating because I think that's something I'm interested in. I think everyone's journey is unique, but also kind of this idea that I 
I've watched you, I've listened to your podcast, I've watched your TED talk, and I've watched the way that you talk about these things in a very non-diet way. And I think a lot of professionals, myself included, struggle with that balance of prioritize your relationship with food, heal from an eating disorder or disordered eating or whatever, wherever you are on that spectrum and giving health promoting information. And I think it's something that I think you do really well. Have you always struggled with that or has that been natural to you? I'm just curious. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's tricky. And I think that I've had a lot of practice with it in my own mind. (laughs) You know, Uh sometimes we have to reconcile these things ourselves because we realize how much bias we have, you know, Mm -hmm. and I did for a long time. I am horrified remembering some of the things that I've told patients and families in the past, because that was the standard. That was what we were taught. That's how most physicians approach it. And that's not how I approach it anymore, but I had to learn through my own experience and really go deep into my own world to discover that I had those biases. But in general, I really try hard to present things in a positive manner as much as possible, just because it works for my personality. But I feel like in pediatrics, it works really well. Parents, I don't know if you're a parent yourself, but parents are like super tired. They're stressed and they're guilt. They feel guilty, like literally all the time. And so if you talk to parents and you're just like, you're doing this wrong, I mean, you're just going to shut down and you're not going to hear anything else. It's more about here are some things that you might try to help with this instead of you're doing this all wrong. And so I feel like in general, presenting things in a positive manner, giving information, but also giving it in a way that has empathy and compassion, openness, and a realization of the true reality of our world, which is that not everybody's going to choose the same thing. So yes, we all have our agendas, right? Like if I could turn the world vegan, if I, if I had that power, I would, but I know that that's not, first of all, realistic and that everybody has their own goals. They have their own dreams. They have their own capabilities. They have different access to resources and I want to work within that to help each person find the health, well-being, joy, and longevity that they desire, because not everybody even desires the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And we can't assume that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think, I don't know if it's because your journey, you found some of those things around the same time that you were able to see, like you can people can potentially incorporate some of these non-diet approaches and a plant predominant eating style at the same time, if they choose to, if they want to. And I, I found, I sort of healed my relationship with food. And then I worked in a preventive cardiology clinic. And that's where I actually also did the Cornell um, plant-based certificate through that clinic because they paid for it. And um, that's where I was exposed, but it was many years after my dieting, but I definitely wish I would have known sooner. And I don't think it would have negatively impacted my disordered eating. I think at all, like, I actually just think this style of eating certainly for my preferences, but also just also the similar impact, like I'm running much better and things like that. I wish I would have known before because I had all those myths of, you know, you need protein to stay full. And I actually never really liked meat that much. I just wasn't my jam. So I was like, I was sort of sad that I hadn't known like, oh, you could feel good. And I think it's a lot of it comes for like our fear of, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I know for me, and I think professionals I work with fearful of 
worsening someone's eating disorder, but I, I kind of think we can trust people to make the choices that are best for them and give them information and then just kind of encourage them to do what's best for them. And I, I love the way you do that. And I think um, it's almost like our fear of like upsetting people keeps us from sharing information that is like, again, the nutrition field to me, I, I used to think, and I do sometimes still think it can be a little confusing, but mostly like the evidence is pretty clear and yet people are very confused still. And we're going to talk about that in a little yeah, bit, but exactly. And yes, I agree. <laughs> Working, having one foot in each place, you know, in the plant-based nutrition world and the intuitive eating world, I realize how there might be a perceived conflict, especially for the people that are in the intuitive eating world. They feel like any sort of what they think is a diet or a restrictive way of eating goes against intuitive eating. But I really feel that the two can be reconciled. What's important is to understand the motivation of the individual, especially because motivation is in the title of your podcast. That's a good thing to talk about. <laughs> I but, certainly agree. <laughs> you know, each person can really, they know why are you doing this? If a person, mm -hmm. the only reason they want to eat in a vegan style or a plant-based style is because they're hoping, even if it's a secret hope that they're not admitting to anybody, that it's going to make them skinny. That's probably restrictive. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But if a person's like, like me, like I started with an experiment, I was curious, how is this going to make me feel? Is this yep. going to help my athletic performance? And I had all kinds of health benefits from it too. And I was just like, I love the way it makes me feel the philosophy and the values aligned with my personality type and the type of person I am. It is not for me in the least bit restrictive. And so each individual has the capacity to determine for themselves, their motivation for choosing a certain style of eating. And if it starts to feel like that diety restrictive thing, then that's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be the way for you. But mm -hmm. I think that there's lots of people that they come to plant-based nutrition for other reasons, whether it's environmental reasons or ethical reasons, and it does not feel restrictive to them so that they can combine the two together to give them the well-being that they desire. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely love that and agree with that. And, and that's definitely the case for me. I was never like fearful. It was going to become restrictive and it never has. In fact, it's like the least restrictive eating pattern ever, because I feel like I'm eating more food than I ever have in many ways, because you're just like, nothing's off limits. And I'm not strictly vegan. Um, I allow all foods and I eat a variety of foods, but I'm always kind of focused on what can I add in? What can I do more of? But it's always been pretty easy to do from that framework for me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, it's sort of like why, at least even for myself, I have to question sort of why am I fearful to suggest? And I, I do talk about it on the podcast, mm -hmm. but like we can trust people and we just have to say, yeah, be mindful of this, right? Be mindful of, and only, I always tell people like only you can know how you actually feel about something. An external person can't know if it's diet mentality or not, so- Exactly. Um, so let's talk about food addiction because you did an incredible interview with Dr. Ashley Gearhart. That's actually, I think one of the first podcast episodes I listened to your, of yours. And I, I laughed to myself because you were saying how excited you were about the interview afterwards. And I was like, that's how I get about podcasting. So it just <laughs> made me smile, but food, uh, food addiction is a very hot emotional topic in the health at every size intuitive eating community. And I'm just curious your thoughts on this, your experiences with this and kind of how you approach this. 
Yes, that's a great question. So I did a little mini series on this because I actually interviewed a person in the plant-based community who's plant-based now, who identifies as a food addict, and then a couple of experts in the field as well. And I say in my podcast episode intro that I have literally been on both sides of the spectrum in my beliefs. (laughs) So I was Mm -hmm. at a time in my life where I'm just like, I have food addiction and everybody's a food addict. And then I went to like the opposite polar opposite, which was food addiction is not real. I mean, especially when I got really immersed into the intuitive eating stuff and I'm like, it doesn't exist. It's not real. This is all created from dieting. And now I'm in the middle. So the pendulum Uh swung and swung the other (laughs) way. And now it's kind of landing in the middle. And I believe that food addiction is a spectrum. And I do think that there are some people that probably qualify and meet criteria as an addict to food. And I think that some of these things are going to be genetically determined. They're going to be determined by what has been available to the person in their environment, what habits they were instilled in when they were children and how it developed. But I think if we deny that food addiction exists, or we say that everybody is a food addict, it's doing a disservice to a lot of different people. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if we say everybody's a food addict, there's all these other people that are eating emotionally or having rebound eating because of restriction, then we're ignoring that problem. We're ignoring the problem that exists. That is restriction and diet mentality and all those things, which definitely needs to be addressed for a lot of people because it's dangerous and it sucks joy from life and it can lead to suicide. So we definitely want to be mindful that sometimes people can feel like they're food addicts or have that response or that behavior in response to restriction and self-imposed restriction, because we know it happens when there's true scarcity, right? We've seen the experiments. We know from examples of food insecurity, children that are raised in houses with food insecurity, they are more likely to overeat and feel out of control around food. That is caused by restriction, but they didn't impose it on themselves. It happened to them, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that this exists. But then on the other end of the spectrum, If we deny that food addiction can exist in some individuals, then we're not being compassionate to those individuals that are really struggling within this environment where food is, and especially high calorie density food is available at all times and was, and is within fingertips reach. So I think that those individuals do need compassionate people that are going to help them if they desire, if that's their goal in their life to come to a place of balance and well-being in their life where food is no longer the center thing, the center joy, the only joy that they're acquiring from life. Mm -hmm. So I do think that it is a spectrum and that we have to come in balance. But again, this is another area where there's two communities that seem to be in conflict with each other. So the food addiction community, of course, they're immersed in their research and they see how people suffer and struggle. And then the intuitive eating community, that's like, no, this is all created by diet mentality. If we didn't have diet mentality, there would be no food addicts, but I don't think that's true. First of all, because the other thing that's not going to change is the fact that we have this high calorie density, hyper palatable food available everywhere in the whole world now. So 
we have to acknowledge that this exists and that this is our environment now. And that because of that, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be people that probably do develop food addiction. Just like if there were no alcohol, there'd be no alcoholics. Right. So that's my feeling on it. Maybe it's a long-winded answer, but I, I think that the answer is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, no, I love that. And that's one of my goals on this podcast is sort of to, I, I think have hopefully people listen and, and see, hear different perspectives and not have, I've been in the bariatric surgery world, preventive cardiology, um, the weight loss world, the intuitive eating health at every size world. And like so many of those providers have so many overlapping goals. Yes. They all want to help their clients. And mm-hmm. yet we spend a lot of time, especially on social media, blaming and pointing fingers and saying, and it's a lot of wasted energy. I think even though Yes, we do need to figure out how we define these things, but it's like, yeah, there's, it's almost always in the middle to some extent, and that social media is certainly not good for nuances and this idea of, yeah, and even though um, I, I didn't listen to that specific interview, and maybe your interview with uh, someone who identified as a food addict is an example of this, but I've listened to an interview with people in that camp as well, and they describe their changes very autonomously. So we often talk about autonomous motivation. They're not doing it from a place of shame. They're doing it from a place of this is the best way to care for my body is to eat mm-hmm. this way. And so that's, again, going back to that motivation, like that's really important. And also people find it validating of their experience to hear yes. this is a real phenomenon. And yeah, I don't know what you think. I think about it as like, we're fighting diet culture but we are also fighting a very strong food industry and they both have a lot of money. And so we don't need to just fight one strong player. We can fight both bows at the same time. Exactly. And I agree that we would probably get farther faster if we all work together rather Mm -hmm. than just spending time saying you're wrong and you're making everything horrible. And also, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm an Enneagram type seven. So I think this probably has to do with my personality type in that I, oh, I just really struggle with being negative about any one industry. And I, I truly believe in my heart, and this is probably my naive part of me, that I really don't think that there's any evil players out there, even though it's easy for us to demonize any industry and say that they're all at blame. They're just all greedy corporate people, but it's this one entity we're thinking about, like whether it's the food industry or, you know, whether it's the weight loss industry, we're thinking of it as one person, but it's lots Mm -hmm. of different people, a lot of which they really do think they're doing the right thing. Like they Mm -hmm. really believe in their mission or their cause or their product. And they're just living their life as a human being on this earth. So having that empathy, having compassion, working together and just informing people about the reality that yes, the food industry is a business. They're not doing this because they're trying to make you healthier. They're doing this because the more product you buy, the more profit they make. And that those are the different, you know, factors and endpoints that they look at to see whether they're successful. It's not because they purposely have this goal that I want to hurt you. And I want all the people that buy my product to die of heart disease or whatever. That's not really what they're thinking. So I think when people realize that, that helps give them that ability to make a choice from what's best for them. You know, that's such a good reframe of even like my, like my statement of like fighting these foes. And it's like, you picture a foe as a human and it's like, no, there's like, it's yeah, it's the reality of the business and it's some, some systems that we can look at, but it's not a one person like trying to harm you. 
Yes, I think that's such a important reframe as we think about productive conversations. So thank you for that. And that's uh, a great transition to talking about um, informing people and thinking about what, you know, what do we know about the standard American diet, how it's impacting disease risk, and along with that, how early we're seeing the impact of this style of eating. Yeah. Ugh, this is the going to be the sobering part of the, of the I interview. I know. And like, I like to focus on the positive, but we have to be aware of the reality. Right. And the reality is that children in the United States right now, 70% of their calories are coming from ultra processed foods, seven, zero, 70%. Wow. And that is not good for us. It's not good for our health. Yes. It's easy. It's convenient the kids love it. <laughs> you know, they request it, they ask for sure. it. And so that's why we end up in this. It's available and the kids ask for, it and it's easy to do, but we are seeing health problems from eating all of this ultra processed foods. You know, they're high in sugars, high in fats, low in fiber, low in antioxidants, high in all kinds of additives. So we are seeing things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes. We're seeing those things happen at earlier and earlier ages. But what's shocking is that this is happening before kids are even born, because when pregnant mamas are eating these foods, just like everybody else is, it's not that pregnant mamas are making bad choices or just eating what everybody else is eating, mm -hmm. then that affects the habits that their children are born with. It affects the metabolism of their unborn baby. And they've even done studies to show that with moms that have high cholesterol, the fetuses actually start to develop fatty streaks within their arteries. The good news is once they're born, those fatty streaks go away pretty quickly. But if you can imagine this baby is already experiencing stress in utero from the choices we make in the standard American diet. So the truth is the standard American diet is not going to be the best choice for health promotion, well-being, or longevity. So we know that that's not going to be the way to do it. And obviously I advocate for plant-based nutrition, but like I said before, I don't expect everybody to be hundred percent plant-based. It's more about how can we eat more whole plants and eat less ultra processed foods. And because we are so far entrenched into ultra processed foods and animal products, there's not much you have to do to improve your wellness, you know? So even if you can just start to add more fruit, just fruit, or my favorite one to push is beans, because a lot of people don't eat any beans at all. How can you incorporate more legumes into your diet step-by-step step, little by little? And you'll see that that's going to help push the needle on your health just because we're so far away from it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, even as you describe that, like you, you always shift, you do this in your podcast, so you shift to like what we can do, but not in a pressuring way or not in an extreme way, but just, and you um, will link to all of the resources on your website. You have so many tangible resources in the episodes, but also on your website, which is wonderful um, because they're, yeah, this message is like, it is, it can be sobering and scary when we learn these things. I learned it after my first pregnancy before my second, that's when I took some of the, and actually our family was also going through um, a genetic testing for cancer risk. So we mm -hmm. actually have like a very high risk and that also was hard, but this information is really empowering. And so I love how you shift away from like, 
yes, the, the accurate facts can be sobering. And also there's a lot we have control over because mm -hmm. I think it's so, so important. And that's definitely for our family, it's been a very um, empowering thing and very much not at all shrinking our bodies. Right. But just like, how can we, for my husband has the um, gene mutation and my kids could. So sort of like, wow. how can, and, but I think for, for any of us, you know, we actually, I think we're going to find more and more of those, those gene mutations as time mm -hmm. goes on. So we probably all have them. We just, he has one that's been discovered and well-studied. So um, yeah. And along those lines, can we talk a little bit about some of the common myths about dairy, animal protein, um, and just so people can kind of understand what they need to know. Yeah. There's a lot of them. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> so I, let's do dairy first. I'm a pediatrician. And as I've said many times, once I learn something new, that's going to help my families better. I change, but at the beginning of my career, I was definitely a milk pusher. Mm -hmm. uh, so I regret some of those times that I was pushing it on these poor little kiddos, but we have been brainwashed. It's been romanticized, you know, this belief that dairy is a health food and that we need to have it in order to have strong bones. And it's just not true. There was a big review study that came out in uh, February of 2020. So right before COVID on milk and health. And I love that review study because it goes through and talks about what are the benefits of dairy? What are the things that we've thought about it? And what are some of the potential harms? And really, when you look at it and you write everything out, pros and cons, the cons outweigh the pros when it comes to dairy. Um, there's been this belief that you need dairy to make your bones strong, but really in population study and large population studies that they've done, the populations that consume the most dairy actually have the most hip fractures. So it's not really protective. It's not protecting us, but it's also the biggest source of saturated fat in the standard American diet. Dairy is that's where we derive the most saturated fat. So it's increasing our risk of heart disease. It's increasing our risk of diabetes. Um, it's exposing us to hormones because it's an inherently hormonal substance. So is human milk, but you know, we give it to babies at a time of their life where that's a good thing to do, but once you're past a certain age, you don't want to continue to consume those hormones external from an external source, but also not from a different species than you that's bigger and has way more of some of these proteins and hormones. So because of that, it does, it is linked to increase in some types of cancers like prostate cancer and endometrial cancer, and perhaps even breast cancer. So those are things that I don't think as parents and as individuals, we want to increase the risk of in ourselves and our children. And so I'm trying to break this myth that dairy is a health food. And I don't, I try not to, because if, if I'm going to demonize anything, it's going to be dairy, which is ironic because my family are dairy farmers in Panama. And that's what I grew up with. <laughs> I love my family, but I try not to demonize it. But the way I tell families is just don't think of it as a health food anymore. If you want to have a little, think of it as a treat food. Think of it as a delicacy that you have every once in a while. But I would really prefer if my families are not drinking dairy, especially not excessive amounts of dairy on a regular basis calcium we can derive from other sources there's fortified you know products plant milk so there's over 20 
different commercially available plant milks now, lots to choose from, but also beans and greens have plenty of calcium. And one of the best ways to build strong bones is through weight bearing exercise, which nobody ever talks about. We're like always talking about calcium and vitamin D. Yes, they're important. And yes, you want to have adequate levels, but really the best way to have strong bones is to move your body regularly and stay physically active. So that's the, the dairy thing and <laughs> the big one. Cause I think that's the hardest one, but I think it can so also hard. be the easiest place for some people to start if they want to experiment with replacing some things in their diet. Like I said, there's over 20 commercially available plant milk. So you'll find one that you like, that's easy. Mm -hmm. If you're used to putting it in your cereal or in your coffee, try that first. You don't have to change anything else. Try that first and see how it goes. And a lot of people are surprised that when they eliminate dairy or replace dairy, things start to feel better in their bodies. Cause they had no clue that they were having, uh, lactose intolerance or a sensitivity to the proteins and those kinds of things. So that's the dairy one. The protein one is another huge one. It comes up all the time. And we have also been brainwashed on this. There's been some misunderstandings about protein and the belief has been for a long time that you can't get enough protein unless you eat animal products. Or if you're vegetarian, you have to eat lots of eggs and dairy. But if you're vegan, definitely not enough protein. And I think the reason this has happened is because we have gotten used to thinking about foods as single macronutrients. So if you think about meat, most people call it protein. Mm -hmm. So they completely forget that meat also has saturated fat in it, you know, and all these other things in it. They just think, okay, meat is protein. And so then they think of fruit, fruit is carbohydrate. They think of rice, rice is carbohydrate. So they're just thinking of everything in these isolated macronutrients. But the amazing thing is that even I didn't realize, okay, like I was an ignorant person too about this. I didn't really think about food this way until I learned more about plant-based nutrition. All whole plant foods are a mixture of macronutrients. All whole plant foods have carbohydrates, have fat, have protein. All of them do. They just have them to various percentages. So if you think of like quote, high protein plant foods, you're going to be thinking about your beans and your legumes and your nuts and seeds and things like that. But those foods also have carbohydrates. They also have fat, but even something like an apple, even something like white rice, it's going to have protein in it. It just has it at a different level. So what I tell people is on a plant-based diet or a predominantly plant-based diet, however you want to do it. If you're eating sufficient calories from a variety of foods, you are going to be getting enough protein and to blow your mind even further, the studies that they've done on longevity and of, you know, health and ultimate health and well-being for a lifespan is that really we're probably consuming way too much protein. And in order to have longer lifespans where you're doing well health wise, we want to get our protein levels lower. We're eating too much in the standard American diet. So the majority of time is not something to worry about. And the majority of plant-based eaters are going to get more than enough protein that they need for their growth and development. And if they want to build more muscle or whatever it is that their goals are just eat enough and you're going to be fine. So yeah, that's the, the protein one that I spent a lot of time talking about. <laughs> that's a, that's an important one. And yeah, have them watch game changers. That's a good do documentary. If you want to look at plant-based athletes, but, um, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is like, I think some people feel like they need protein to feel full. And at least my experience is sometimes it's because with 
plant predominant eating, you can just, you actually should eat more larger portions. So it's like people are eating these small portions because they think that's healthy. And it's like, no, just eat a little bit more of the, at least that's what our family has found. Like my husband was worried he wouldn't be full with not protein. And that's not the case at all. I don't, I don't think he eats any meat any, well, sometimes he does, but it's very rare. He actually eats less, um, more plant-based than I do now. Yeah. And this is a myth too. So I think what happens is when people transition to this way of eating, they think of plant-based as fruits and vegetables, which are Mm -hmm. very low in calorie density. Mm -hmm. They're super high in nutrient density, but Mm -hmm. they're low in calories, which is one reason that you can eat a huge quantity and not overeat in your calories. But if you're just eating a salad that has lettuce and tomato and carrots, and maybe just like a little sprinkle of your dressing, it's not enough calories. You're going to feel hungry. Mm-hmm. And so people go around, try to eat this way. And there's like, I couldn't do it. I was hungry all the time. It was because you weren't getting enough calories. So you cannot neglect what everybody is afraid of the carb phobia. So yes. they feel like, okay, I can't have carbohydrates. So I, I can't have any brown rice or beans or any of that kind of stuff. But when you eat a plant-based or a plant predominant diet, you are deriving the majority of your calories from carbohydrates. And believe me, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So eat your whole grains, eat your beans, eat your nuts and seeds. And when you have a combination of all of those foods, that's when you start to feel nice and full and satisfied. And you have this vigor for life. You have the energy you can think well, you can sleep well, and then you hit that sweet spot, but you can't just eat fruits and vegetables. It's you're either going to have to eat massive quantities and be eating all day long, or you're not going to feel satisfied. Right. Yes, exactly. And I don't know if I interrupted, if you were, had any other myths you wanted to throw in there, I just wanted to jump in with that, but well, yeah, I just want to say another thing too, that with the, you need protein to feel full, this gets pushed around all the time. That protein helps you feel full. And I cannot find very good studies to prove that, but there is this really great study where they studied different foods and the satiety factor of how much it helped people feel full and how long they felt full afterwards. And I think they tested a, a hundred different foods, some of which were processed and some of which were whole the food that had the greatest satiety factor. Do you know what it is? I don't. I'm curious. White potatoes. Oh, I listened to your episode about white potatoes. I missed that one, but white potatoes, white potatoes. And not only was it the most satisfying, but it was off of the chart satisfying. It was more than the animal products. So it's kind of a myth that you need protein to feel full. And so I would say people play around if they're struggling with this, if they're struggling with feeling like they're not feeling full enough, not feeling satisfied after their meals, change the composition of what you have in your meals and don't feel shy about adding some good complex carbohydrates in there because Mm -hmm. they do help you feel full. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I feel sad about all the, like, try to healthy dinners. I tried to make myself before I knew all this, where it's like this chicken. I didn't really like chicken that much, but I'd eat it. And it was like steamed broccoli and like a little bit of brown rice. And it's like, that was so not filling. (laughs) I know that is like, seriously, I sort of from my old dieting days in the nineties, that's what it was chicken breast and broccoli. That's what it was. And then of course, low fat dairy. So it was like all of this, like, you know, cheese sticks and low fat yogurt. That was like the three food groups. It was meat, a little bit of broccoli and a bunch of dairy. (laughs) I know. not appealing looking back, but that's what, that's what we did, I guess. But, um, 
And then I want to ask one question about, you know, I actually just recently heard about the plant paradox by, um, I'm sure you've heard of, I, I had to look him up, Dr. Stephen Gundry from a friend. And I, my question is maybe a little bit about that. It's something about lectins. Maybe we can dispute that a little bit, but like, there's just so much confusion. I think even for me, sometimes not having the nutrition background, I'm like, I, I keep wanting to be like, I'm open-minded, but like everything I see is pointing to this direction. And I don't really have a bias. Like I don't, I eat this way, but I don't care. But how can people know who to believe when they hear things like the plant paradox? I know it's so difficult. And I had gotten so many questions about this. And there are so many people. I think that sometimes when these books come out, people become fanatic about them. And that's their new aim in life is like, now I'm never going to eat lectins again. And that's going to solve all my health problems. And so I, this question kept coming up over and over and over again. And I kept being like, nothing to worry about, please. I mean, just look at all these populations that literally have been eating beans forever. And they were way healthier when they were eating more beans and when they were eating less beans, Mm -hmm. this common sense stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So finally I was like, all right, I need to read this book. So I actually read the plant paradox and I was actually surprised that people were not really understanding what he was saying. Like they miss, they misinterpreted a lot of things that he said. He did not say, don't eat beans. All he said is, if you're going to eat beans, pressure cook them. And he eats beans himself. Hmm. So I don't think you have to pressure cook beans in order for them to be healthy. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, is that people were taking this as a never eat any plants because all plants have lectins and especially beans, but that's not what he was saying at all. Um, But this is a case of what we call reductionism, which is whenever you start looking at one nutrient, over-focusing on it and worrying about the things about it. And really when we look at nutrition, we should look at it more holistically Mm -hmm. and realize there's all kinds of things happening in our body at the same time when we eat a combination of foods. And right now we're probably not sophisticated or we, we haven't done enough research to understand everything and how it works and why it works, especially when we eat whole plant foods. So in general, I really do not worry about these lectins or these phytates or any of these so-called quote anti-nutrients unless people have specific health conditions where they need to be mindful. And particularly those people that I'm talking about are people that have specific nutrient deficiencies where these foods may compete with the absorption of other nutrients. And that's going to be in individual cases for the most part. Don't worry about it. Don't eat raw beans. I mean, don't eat raw dried beans because yeah, you're going to feel awful. And that's not something good to eat. Cook your beans. That would hurt. You want to pressure cook your beans, pressure cook your beans. But if they're cooked, I'm not worried about it. And we have so much research that shows that beans and whole grains and all of these plant foods are really health promoting and they really help decrease our risk of disease. But the second question you had, which is how do we know who to trust? I think it can be really hard. I don't think I have a great answer for that question. I think each person needs to first and foremost, trust themselves and learn how to be their own best coach, learn how to be their own best advocate and also learn to be intuitive. So eating certain foods, seeing how it feels, eating foods cooked in different ways, seeing how it feels. If there's a food that repeatedly doesn't make you feel good when you eat it, maybe that's not going to be a food for you, but it could also be the method that you're cooking it in or what you're eating it with. And so I think it's 
not a bad thing to explore some of these concepts and read about them, but I want everybody to always come at it with this open mind and a healthy dose of skepticism so that if they read this stuff and they're like, that's really not been my experience at all. When I eat these foods, I feel amazing. Well, then that's the truth for you. You don't have to necessarily change your way of eating because one person said that all lectins are bad for you. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, and kind of do experiments like, like you did, or just, you can try things out, be curious, but, but yeah, trusting yourself. I love that because we can always rely on that and you can take in information, but then sort of parse it out and, and you could try it, or you could at least even just looking at, I think also like people's not, not to blame people, but like kind of looking at where their framework is and where the, we all have our biases and where I, I do too, you know, it's like, we all have our experiences that impact us. So, but that's a little bit hard to parse out. It's not, it's not an easy thing. So I love that trusting yourself and, and what you said too, of just like looking at the big picture, a lot of that's like zoom out of like not getting too, too caught up in any one detail. Yeah. Um, and I think just and it's hard because I'm probably guilty of this a lot, especially with dairy, but whenever you see a book that comes out and basically blames one thing for all problems, we probably should be skeptical about it. Like if everybody just stopped eating lectins, we're all going to be healthy is probably not true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so same thing with sugar and with all of these and things that come out that basically this is a demon food and it's the cause of all of our problems. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We need to be thinking about that because be skeptical. Yeah. Cause that's not usually how things work, but yes, absolutely. So, um, what are your kind of top tips if someone wants to, you know, you have a, a ton of free resources and great things that can point people in this direction, but kind of top tips for people that want to add more whole plant foods into their eating pattern, where would you suggest they start? Yeah. Just start at one meal a day. And you know, we're all on a spectrum. So I have met adults who are still considered quote picky <laughs> and they were like, oh, I can't eat any vegetable. Death. There's a lot of adults walking around like that. Yeah. So just be gentle with yourself, come up with a plan and start small. So even just one meal, like say that your breakfast, you're used to having like an egg sandwich and nothing else. Well, how can you even just add a side of fruit? Or how can you saute some spinach into your egg and put it in your sandwich little by little, once you feel like you've got that down for your breakfast, then start adding it to another meal or a snack in your day. And it's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, a lot of different foods. Like I said, beans is one that I like to push because people aren't familiar with it, but play around with beans. How can you even, you don't even have to replace your meat with beans, but how can you even add beans to your meat? Like people make things like hamburger help, help, uh, helper, or, you know, they make, um, taco Tuesday, things like that. And you get your ground beef, add lentils to it, you know, just start that way. And then over time, you can increase the portion of lentils that you put in and decrease the meat. And it's easy to just add fruits to your snacks because a lot of fruits are portable, like apples and bananas and things like that. So just little by little meal by meal, and just think of it first as adding, not subtracting. And once you get comfortable with the addition, then you can consider, do I want to start subtracting some meat and instead replacing it with some of these whole plant foods. And I think that if you are persistent and consistent, 
then eventually you're going to look back and be like, whoa, I made some dramatic changes and it did not feel restrictive. It didn't feel difficult. And I love this new way of eating that I've developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that that's a better approach doing it gradually versus doing an experiment for 30 days ish? It's a depends, personality but... thing. Yeah. I think people with my personality are probably less common. So I'm an all or nothing person. So I just want to go full blast and just change. And, but I'm also very curious. So I like to see if there's an effect to my change quicker. And I'm also impatient, which is not a good thing. I want you to be more patient than me. Okay. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. Um, so, but I think that a lot of people, when they try to do the all or nothing, it backfires on them because it's difficult. It's a big change. They feel not comfortable with it. And then they're like, well, then it's going to be nothing. And then Mm -hmm. they, in a year, nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. So I think you really have to evaluate your, your personality. If you're the kind of person that you feel that you can make a big change, but you, you stay present, you're not blaming yourself. You're not going to just go back and do nothing at all. Then yeah, you can try to go all in. And it also depends on your situation. Some people they're making a change because they have some true health problems that they really want to see if making that change is going to affect their health problems. Some people are relatively healthy. They feel good. They just want to see if they can feel better or if they can change their diet. So you have to evaluate all those things. But I feel like for the majority of people making small gradual changes seems to be very effective. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I was somewhere in the middle. We did like a, Oh, we're going to try the forks over knives meal planner for a week. And we did several meals, um, in that week, but not all meals. And so there's always like that continuum and you can kind of choose what exactly. feels doable for, mm-hmm. for you. Cause that for us, that was enough to see, wow, we feel a lot better. Well, at first it was more like, we just like this more than we thought. And soon after it was like, wow, we feel a lot better than we thought mm-hmm. we would. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know we felt that bad. So yeah. <laughs> um, and So we'll move on to our motivation questions that we ask at the end here. So first, um, in terms of intrinsic motivation, what's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior, enjoying it, finding it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Exercise. I love it. I, I love exercising so much that even if I'm running late in the morning, I will try to get in even like 10 little 15 minute, I have a home gym. So I feel very fortunate about that. I just hop on and hop off my bike or my treadmill. And I love it. Like, it's not something I do because I want to change the shape of my body, or it's not something I do because I feel like I need to burn calories. It's something I do because it literally gives me those endorphins that last throughout my day and helps me feel good. So I feel it from the inside of my body that I really want to do this because I want to have a day that feels good. So that one's one. And I've had that feeling with exercise for a long time in my life. Cause I started exercising like formal gym stuff when I was a teenager and it's only just gotten better since then, you know? So, okay. I really so love yeah, it. you were main, able to maintain that positive association with exercise throughout the diet cycle as yes. well. That's yeah. That's kind of how I, I was never, too. I never had like exercise bulimia or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that I never made exercise into, I just need to burn a bunch of calories. I, I just always loved it. So yeah. I'm yeah. Thankful for that. Yeah. I find at least for the folks that I work with, it's about, I always say roughly half and half. Like, it's just like, sometimes we're able to kind of separate that. And it's usually cause it's never about weight loss. It's about mm-hmm. like enjoying it. And that's how it's like, 
but yeah, I also found like moving away from that, even more dieting, it's like even freed me up to love exercise more. Mm-hmm. Like I just like, absolutely, yep. it's like, so it even can release you, even if you didn't realize you were a little bit caught in that. So, um, and then our other kind of from a should to a choose to motivation question. So this is an example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you struggled to do consistently, but now you figured out a way to do it more consistently, either because you value it or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah. So I turned this one around a lot because I'll admit I make a lot of dopamine. So I think I'm a high dopamine producer, which means that I am highly motivated for a lot of things more than a lot of people. And a lot of people feel bad about themselves because they compare themselves to me. But really, I literally think I have some sort of genetic difference where everything sounds fun and exciting to me. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I do too much. So my Mm -hmm. should has- I might have that problem too, maybe. Yeah, so my should (laughs) in the past has always been- my work, my achievements and what I produce and what I put out in the world has always been something that has been tied to my feelings of worthiness and validation. Okay. So because I do love it and I've always wanted to do it, but then when it would get stressful or when I was really overextending myself, I wouldn't quit because I felt like I had to, like, this is something I should do, whether it's to serve people or because I felt like it was a sign of how worthy I was in life. Mm -hmm. So I really have had to pull back over the past couple of years, especially with COVID because I like burn myself out to the ground. I will burn myself to the point where I'm just like, can't get up, you know? So I've had to change this into a really tuning into my body and something I choose to do because I like it and I enjoy it and it brings me joy. And yes, I can serve this way, but not something I have to do. It's not something I need to do to be worthy in this life. It's not something that I have to do to get validation in this life. So that's still a journey. And I, I still get caught in that trap. So it's a little different than what you asked, but I'll just say that most of the things I just, I have a lot of motivation. (laughs) So too much motivation sometimes. (laughs) It sounds like the should is almost the slowing down. I should slow down and then shifting towards being able to choose to slow down a bit. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly relate with that too. And, and, and trying to figure out what that looks like. I'm actually pretty, pretty in it right now. still trying to figure that out. So it's a work in progress, but kind of knowing like my body's giving me signals that I should do this. And I, I, I choose it, but how to navigate that when it's, there's a strong drive to, to love what you do, which is a privilege we both have, it sounds like. And yes. yeah, not an easy thing, but if there's any tips that you have that's helped you to slow down. <laughs> I think just what you said is tuning in to my body because I would just ignore it. And I have a very strong intuition and I call it my donkey. I think I've talked about this in my podcast a couple of times. Like there's been times where I've had the signals, had the signals, ignored it until my body's like physically like, no, you will not go further. And I call it my donkey. Cause I think of Eeyore and I think of Eeyore just sitting there and it's not going anywhere. Like you <laughs> will do what I say now. Cause you're not I listening am, to me. I have done. And so sometimes I'll be like, Oh, my donkey's about to come out. So then I'll learn how to ease up before the donkey comes out. And I literally shut down. I can't do anything. <laughs> so I'm learning. It's just more about yes. responding to that inner voice instead of ignoring it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a work in progress. But I just had a conversation with someone this morning, getting more tips. I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to 
try to prevent this before it gets down the road the donkey because <laughs> yes. I could see luck. that good luck. I could have it thank you very much <laughs> well thank you so much this has been an incredible conversation where can people learn more about you and the work you're doing and get all the great resources that, that you have Awesome. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And so there's a couple of places, my website, dryami.com. It's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com. And if you go to that forward slash free, so dryami.com forward slash free, that's where you can find all my freebies. And I have lots of resources there for people that are wanting to replace dairy or replace eggs or how to eat out at restaurants, plant-based. I have lots of resources and for parents to like top five ways to decrease stress when feeding your child. And then I'm active on Instagram and it's at the Dr. Yami all spelled out. So those are the the top places. And then my podcast is called veggie doctor radio. And I have hundreds of episodes there for you to peruse and all kinds of different topics, because I'm curious about lots of different things, but predominantly about nutrition and lifestyle medicine, because those are my favorite. Yeah, it's great. And lots of like how to, how to add more, what is it? Winter squash, sweet potatoes. You had some specific Mm -hmm. ones recently that I listened to and then some other broader topics. So, well, thank you so much again. It has been a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. And I hope that you have a great day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, It would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.